Welcome to The Honest Report, a weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. The condemnation of Kanye West is reaching fever pitch, intensifying after he was banned from Twitter for this anti-Semitic tweet. DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Now one of the biggest names in sports facing backlash for spreading anti-Semitism, NBA star Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets shared a link last week on social media to a 2018 film that's been described as anti-Semitic. Here's your host, Rob Walker. On September 30th, 2000, Mohamed Aldoura, a young Palestinian boy, was caught on film dying in the crossfire between Israeli troops and Palestinian terrorists in the Gaza Strip. Even before the spread of social media networks like Facebook, TikTok, or Twitter, the video of his death went viral. Almost instantly, Israel was accused of intentionally murdering the boy, though no such evidence exists. Despite this absence of evidence, the footage became an enduring symbol of the nascent Second Intifada, or Palestinian uprising. But there was little doubt that the death, widely reported by the news media at the time, played a major role. To help us understand this context and how the incident's reporting was only a symptom of a larger problem in the news media, we are joined in this week's podcast by Professor Richard Landis. Professor Landis, formerly a lecturer at Boston University, is now an Israel-based researcher and scholar who is widely credited with coining the term Pallywood, referring to staged Palestinian incidents aiming to promote anti-Israel propaganda. His recent book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad, discusses this incident at length. Professor Landis will be speaking at an event on Wednesday, May 10th at Beth Abraham Yosef Synagogue in Thornhill, Ontario at 8 p.m., co-sponsored by Honest Reporting Canada. Welcome to the Honest Report Podcast. Professor Richard Landis, welcome to the Honest Report Podcast. Thank you. We are very excited to have you here, and of course, uh, we will be having you uh, as a guest lecturer. Uh, Honest Reporting Canada is a uh, co-sponsor of a uh, an upcoming visit to uh, uh, to the Toronto area that you'll be having on the 10th of May at the Beth Abraham Yosef of Toronto Synagogue in Thornhill, just outside Toronto, uh, where I look forward to uh, engaging in some Q&A with you. Uh, but in advance of that, I'm really excited to speak about your most recent book, uh, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad. So you've taken on you you've taken a very big bite out of a lot of different key issues here. Uh, what prompted you to uh, to tackle this uh, this issue? Well, to be honest, uh, I'm a medieval historian by profession, and my favorite century is the 11th. Um, so it really took something to get me out of it, but it was basically the outbreak of the Intifada, followed by 9/11, and. Uh, what I saw was just an appalling inability of Westerners to process what was happening. Um, and in 2003, on a trip to France, I met with some people who were investigating the Muhammad Adua affair. This is the story of a boy behind a barrel, hiding, uh, waving allegedly to the Israelis to stop shooting, and they shot him in cold blood, and they targeted him, according to the French journalists, French-Israeli journalists who reported it, and it it just went viral, and it operated as a kind of blood libel in which Israel was now seen as the new Nazis, uh, what's come to be called Holocaust inversion. So I was in France in the summer of 2003, 
And I got to see the footage, at least the footage that these investigators had. Later on that year, I went uh, to I, I went to uh, Israel and saw the footage, the actual footage shot by the 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 photographer who claimed that this was the scene of the killing. And I was uh, immediately convinced that the thing had been staged, as were the other. The others, but it got nobody was willing to accept this possibility. Israel says there's new evidence that a French TV report whose harrowing images helped inspire the second Palestinian uprising was unfounded. The report in 2000 showed father and son in Gaza caught up in Israeli-Palestinian crossfire. The 12-year-old was later pronounced dead, hit, said France 2, by Israeli troops. Nearly 13 years later, the Israeli government commissioned report says there's no proof Israel was responsible, adding that unbroadcast pictures suggest the two were perhaps not hit at all. And as a result, I got more and more involved in both this particular case. More broadly, I ended up coining the term Pallywood for Palestinian Hollywood, sort of Bollywood, uh, an industry of fakes. Um, and as a result, you know, I, I set up a blog, I did some documentaries, um, and I became pretty much against, uh, I mean, I enjoyed doing it, but it really is not, it's nasty stuff. Uh, I became a critic of the mainstream news media, which was engaged in what I call lethal journalism, which is basically presenting Palestinian uh, propaganda claims, war propaganda, lethal narratives um, about uh, evil Israel as news. And the third chapter in the book is about Janine, where you know the reporters weren't even in Janine or in Janine refugee camp where the fighting was happening, and they were just handing over Palestinian claims that the Israelis were lining up people and massacring them and covering their bodies in mass graves, literally the way the Nazis behaved. And, and within a year or so, polls showed that the majority or a plurality of the Europeans believed that uh, the Israelis were committing genocide against Palestinians. And so, you know, all of that together, including the reaction to 9-11, uh, in a sense convinced me that we're, the, the West was incapable of processing what was happening and that as a result they were doing everything wrong uh, in opposing uh, jihad and the sort of what I call the cognitive war of invading without um, using, well, without using violence. Cognitive war is basically convincing your enemy to stand down while you come in and take over. And to my astonishment, that's what the sort of intellectual and political leadership in the West uh, was engaged in. So uh, against my will, I guess, and it took me over a decade to write it, I wrote this book about just how appalling the West's response to global jihad has been, and anti-Semitism, of course, as the sort of soft spot, the, the sort of soft underbelly by which the jihadis were able to invade. So there's really two, I mean, there's multiple layers here, but there's really two sort of questions that I would have, which is, Regarding the theme, one, is this a consequence of a latent 
anti-Israel, anti-Semitic uh, sentiment? Or is this more a product of intellectual laziness or just more broadly a, a lack of interest in getting to the, you know, the, the real story? The laziness cannot be underestimated. There are really three layers here. One is an ideological layer in which uh, journalists, uh, some, some, not all, but some and increasingly more since uh, 2000, are committed to a kind of post-colonial Edward Saidian paradigm in which the Israelis are colonial invaders and the Palestinians are native uh, native resistors, uh, indigenous resistors to Western imperialism. Um, and so the journalists, for example, when I would complain about their handling of Palestinian narratives, they would say to me, well, look, it's the, it's the what do they call it, the weapons of the weak. So they're just, you know, that's what they've got. They don't have uh, jet planes like Israel does, so we're leveling the playing field, which is when you consider who you're leveling the playing field for, in other words, organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah and the PA, which are engaged literally on a daily basis in inculcating uh, exterminationist Jew hatred in their populations, um, that's a pretty stupid thing to do. I, actually, the original title of the book was uh, They're So Smart Because We're So Stupid. Um, so on, on one level, there's this ideological one, but I think that that actually operates as a fig leaf for two other issues which I think are stronger. One is intimidation. In other words, if you're a journalist here and you don't tell the story the way the Palestinians want you to tell it, you're in trouble. I mean, on a, first of all, you're not going to have access to any Palestinians. You're in danger if you go into the West Bank. and even greater danger if you go into Gaza and so on. Um, and they will instruct you not to use the word terrorism, even though they're attacking civilians. And they'll encourage you to use the word terrorism against the Israelis. So on the one hand, there's this intimidation, which I think is very strong and about which the legacy media is in total denial. But then there's the other one, and this is the really disturbing one, which is that I think that they're both among the journalists and among a fairly enthusiastic audience in the West, there's a kind of moral schadenfreude, the sort of delight that people take in seeing Jews, the Jewish state, in moral failure so that any news of Jews behaving badly somehow gives people a, I, I call it progressive supersessionism, it gives people, the progressives, the sense that, yes, we, it, it confirms their belief that, yes, we are the moral cutting edge of the planet, we are the moral leaders of the planet, and Israel has lost the moral high ground, which is a, a theme that you hear over and over every time during Janine, Israel has lost the moral high ground. Uh, and that comes from people like Kofi Annan, who, among other things, is the reason for the actual title of the book, because his response to Israel saying we didn't massacre people in Jenin was to say, can the whole world be I don't think the whole world can be wrong and Israel be right, uh, which echoes a previous remark by Echad Am back in 1892 in Ukraine when the blood libel was circulating. A Jew says, but we, we don't eat the blood of Christian boys in our matzah, and the response was, can the Jews be right and the whole and everyone else be wrong? 
So it's an interesting um, it's an interesting idea because you're talking about in part how the journalism, the news media, of course, came to perpetuate. You talked about the Mohammed Oldura uh, case and how the news media came to really, in no small part, take this picture, take this video, and really make it emblematic of uh, you know alleged Israeli atrocities. I wonder how do you think that was you know obviously two decades more than two decades ago. If this took place today uh, with social media, how would things be different? How would things look different? Uh, you know that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I have an answer. One aspect of the answer is slightly encouraging, which is it would get much more pushback. I mean, there was no pushback in 2000, uh, and in fact, the Israelis didn't want. They they, they really were against people like me pushing back on this. And at one point I had a conversation with uh, the the spokesman for the IDF in charge of the foreign press um, who said, it, it, at one point in the conversation said to me, do you think that this is staged? I said, yes. She said, that's it. There's no more to talk about. Because they they absolutely refused to, do, to, to, to even suggest that it was staged, not until the Cooperwasser... Uh, investigation of 2013, and even then the Israeli media was quite hostile to his conclusions and limited the exposure that people like me had to the to the reading and viewing public. So I think today there's a much greater group of people out there who are ready to push back against fakes like this. And I think that it, it would be called a fake um, and uh, I think there'd be a very strong case made for that. On the other hand, the, the anti-Israel uh, forces have really, I mean, they're now in the United States Congress, um, and they're ferocious, and the cancel culture that we're dealing with, the sort of woke revolution and the, the, the accusations of, of racism, um, would make it very hard to push back. I mean, uh, what I think would happen is what happened, for example, in 2014, there was a bombing of a refugee camp in Gaza that killed 10 kids. And it became immediately apparent, and the Israeli army published evidence uh, tracking the missiles that this was from Hamas that did it. But a later study showed that, you know, the the area within the sort of news uh, internet news world that accepted this conclusion was actually very small and the area with places like the BBC and the Guardian and the New York Times in which these conclusions were not accepted was much greater so I, I you know I, I I really you know I'd like to think that this time it would get stopped that there are enough people who are aware enough of what's going on that that there would be pushback but I can't say I'm enormously optimistic and you know of course journalists today are like everyone else products of their society what in your mind, will it take to help rectify the situation where people have a little more critical thinking, particularly when it comes to re reporting or incidents or claims uh, coming from the Middle East? Well, uh, look, I think you, what you say is very important. I mean, one of the things that I'm arguing is that lethal journalism might defy, define 
as when journalists in a foreign conflict report one side's war propaganda as news against the other side. Own goal war journalism is when you report your own society's enemies war propaganda as news. And that's, in fact, what's been happening. And as a result, um, you have this, this terrible situation in the West today where, you know, not only is politics partisan, politics is always partisan, but it's become tribal in the sense of my side right or wrong. And whatever the other side does is, is not only, and, and we see it in Israel today, it's not just that the other side disagrees with me, it's that the other side disagrees with me because they're bad, because their intentions are bad, because, to use the, the really nasty word, they're evil. And so as a result, we have what Samuel Huntington back in 1994 talked about, the clash of civilizations. Well, the clash has actually been internalized within our societies. And um, in my book, I argue that the only sane way out is to confront this original sin, if you will, in 2000 of uh, blaming Israel for the Intifada and uh, making the Palestinians into some kind of resistance heroes, freedom fighters. Uh, and until you do that, I don't think that we can heal these wounds. But the resistance to that is huge. Um, so it's it's hard to say. I mean, the thing that we need is for journalists to come back at least to a commitment to what professional journalism is about, which is, among other things, and high on the list, um, being serious reporters and screening out unreliable news, um, which is not what they've done, and also correcting when you're wrong, which is also not what they've done. So just to get the, the journalists to be professional, I, I think a lot of journalists think if they produce slick stuff, that shows that they're professional. Um, and a lot of journalists today are now convinced that the only thing that you, what you need to do is to feed information to the public that will make them behave and vote the way you want them to. So, you know, you see this, the, the, the Hunter-Biden uh, laptop affair uh, gets completely denied because it's a way of making sure that Trump doesn't become president. So you get somebody like Tom Friedman in the New York Times writing, you know, that if Trump becomes president, it's the end of the world. There are people who think that if Kamala Harris and Joe Biden gain the presidency for another four years, it'll be the end of the world. And they both may be right. I mean, we're, we're in a situation now where we're, we're really perilously in danger. And I think that one of the major reasons is that we've been blindsided by a increasingly partisan media. And one of the key dimensions of that partisanship is, in fact, um, the position they've taken on uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, listen, honest reporting was started by an incident that occurred the day before Mohammed Adoula in which the press misreported according to their paradigm of the Israeli Goliath and the Palestinian David. So they get a picture of a kid who's been beaten up by the Palestinians, um, taking refuge with behind an Israeli uh, border policeman, and it's, you know, the border policeman has beaten up this kid because it just didn't compute that 
you know, the Palestinians would be beating up on Israelis, which is what they did. They didn't just beat up on the kid, they beat up on reporters. And so as a result, you know, you've got this this twisted, the, the first massive case in the legacy media of fake news, on the one hand, it's still ongoing, it's metastasized, and, uh, you know, I hate to say it, no end in sight. Well, not a cheery way to uh, end the conversation, uh, Professor, but uh, I think definitely you've given us a really deep understanding of what's taken place, you know, uh, more than two decades ago that uh, is ancient history for most people. So I appreciate your uh, your time speaking with us today and helping us understand uh, something that uh, for most people has already fallen by the wayside. So thank you very much and looking forward to speaking with you on the 10th. Thank you. Look forward. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.